Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The Environmental Protection Agency sets a new, tougher ozone standard in efforts to cut smog, but it ignores the advice of the agency's own science panel. When you look at the available science, you look at what EPA's own staff recommended, but EPA picks something higher, then yes, uh, I'm left scratching my head wondering uh, what was the basis for that. Plus, a call on Congress to overhaul the Clean Air Act. Also, Arizona's signature cacti are threatened thanks to a fast-spreading grass from Ethiopia. Uh, This grass burns very vigorously with very tall flame, and it's easily able to uh, destroy a house and all the plants, including saguaros, around it. Invasive species in our national parks as well as our backyards. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. For the first time in more than a decade, U.S. environmental officials are strengthening the health standard for ozone, the major ingredient in smog. That means hundreds of communities around the country will have to do more to clean the air of the pollutants that react with sunlight to form toxic ground-level ozone. The new standard is only a tiny fraction tighter than the old one, But health experts say even tiny amounts of ozone in the air make a huge difference. Janice Nolan of the American Lung Association says that's because ozone is so damaging to sensitive tissue in our lungs. Ozone is like having a sunburn on the lungs. It irritates, it inflames, it aggravates the tissue, and that ends up causing a lot of problems. It can trigger asthma attacks. Uh, It can make it coughing and, and wheezing. It can send people to the hospital, and now we know they can actually shorten life. Studies link ozone exposure to thousands of hospital visits, missed school and work days, and premature deaths each year in the U.S. That's why public health advocates and many government scientists want a much stronger health standard. But industry leaders say the health gains are small compared to the cost of pollution controls they would have to install. Living on Earth's Jeff Young helps us cut through the haze to get to what's behind the new ozone standard and what it means for our air. It was one of the biggest decisions left for Stephen Johnson in his final year as the Environmental Protection Agency Administrator under President Bush. Ozone is the most widespread air pollutant, and air quality for millions rests on the limit EPA sets. Johnson says his decision to lower that limit from 80 to 75 parts per billion is historic. EPA is meeting the requirement of the Clean Air Act by signing the most stringent standard ever for ozone. An analysis by the EPA estimates that under the new standard, up to 3,500 premature deaths linked to ozone exposure could be avoided each year. But Johnson did not reach this decision willingly. Even though the Clean Air Act calls for a review every five years, it took a lawsuit by public health groups to force EPA to update the 10-year-old standard. And Johnson's decision fell short of what most health experts and his own science advisors recommended. 
Dr. Rogene Henderson, a professor at the Lovelace Respiratory Research Institute in New Mexico, leads the EPA's Clean Air Science Advisory Committee. That panel of outside experts unanimously recommended a much stronger ozone limit, somewhere between 60 and 70 parts per billion. I think he has taken a step in the right direction. It's not as big a step as his advisory committee would have liked. It is discouraging to, to, to work very hard and then uh, not have our advice taken. The EPA analysis says potential health benefits of the limit the panel recommended would be many times greater than the one Johnson chose. More than 9,000 premature deaths could be avoided each year. Henderson says the law requires an adequate margin of safety to protect those most vulnerable to dirty air. The main concern, I mean, the difference between the level he set and the level we recommended will be that this margin of safety, is the sensitive subpopulations such as asthmatics or people with respiratory disease may not be protected at the 75 level. A separate advisory panel on children's health reached a similar conclusion, and more than a dozen major public health groups urged Johnson to follow the panel's advice. But health advocates weren't the only people weighing in on the ozone decision. Several key lawmakers, including most of the Republicans in the U.S. Senate's Environment Committee, told the EPA not to tighten the ozone standard at all. Ohio Republican Senator George Voinovich sent Johnson a letter arguing that the cost to industry would be too great. They haven't proven to me that changing it's going to make uh, that much of a difference in terms of uh, public health. And you get all these statistics out there, and I, I, you know, I'm skeptical of them. That's all. EPA and White House records show a parade of lobbyists from manufacturers, the oil and refining industries, chemical companies, automakers, and even corn growers made the rounds to argue that a tougher standard would be bad for business. It leads some public health advocates to wonder who really had the most influence over Johnson's decision. Paul Miller is with Nescom, a clean air association that represents northeastern states from New Jersey to Maine, areas with major ozone problems. When you look at the available science, you look at what EPA's own staff recommended, but EPA picked something higher, then yes, uh, I'm left scratching my head wondering uh, what was the basis for that. Do you think then that uh, Administrator Johnson listened to those industry lobbyists rather than the scientists? I think it's very possible that someone in the government listened to those arguments and Either Administrator Johnson was in agreement or was told he was in agreement that uh, the standard would not be set uh, within a range that the science called for and the outside experts called for. It is against the law for the EPA to take the cost of compliance into account when setting a health-based standard for ambient air quality. The U.S. Supreme Court settled that issue in a 2001 decision on the Clean Air Act. Johnson insists he followed that law and based his ozone decision solely on science. However, he also used the announcement of that standard as a chance to propose major changes to the Clean Air Act. One thing he'd like to change is that ban on considering costs in air quality decisions. Bottom line, it's time to modernize the Clean Air Act to improve human health. It should allow decision-makers to consider benefits, costs, risks, trade-offs, and feasibility in making decisions about how to clean the air. 
On Capitol Hill, there was little interest in Johnson's proposal to dramatically rewrite one of the country's most important environmental laws. There is, however, a lot of interest in a fuller explanation of Johnson's ozone decision and why he ignored his science advisors. That might clear up how the decision was made, but it will likely be a while before the new standard really clears the air. It could take a decade or more to implement new ozone reductions. And even though ozone levels have declined around the country, many major cities still do not comply with the old ozone standard set more than 10 years ago. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington. Ozone is not only bad for the lungs, but it's also damaging to plants. Ground-level ozone turns their leaves brown and spotty and stunts their growth. It's particularly noxious to crops. Ozone has already cut cereal production in the U.S. by about 5 percent, and at the current levels could slash world crop yields nearly 40 percent by the end of the century. Those figures come from John Riley. He's associate director of the MIT Joint Program on the Science and Policy of Global Change. He led a recent study on ozone and crops and joins me now in the studio. Hello, Dr. Riley. Hello. I gather, looking at your study, that you see ozone pollution as not only a city problem, but a rural problem and a global one at that. Many years ago, when some of the first clean air legislation was passed, I think people saw this very much as just an urban problem. When measurements have extended, people have realized that the ozone actually lives in the atmosphere for a few months. And so over that time, it spreads out across the landscape. And in fact, over the course of three months, you can have a lot of transport around the entire globe. And so that means that ozone can appear at high levels uh, in different places. The actual ozone levels then get higher because the background level is higher. Now, as I understand it, leaves actually breathe. Plants actually breathe. They have these stomata, these openings on their leaves in which they take in air and they let it out. What does ozone do to that process? That's where the ozone actually enters into the plant. So the plant is trying to use CO2, and that's one of its basic ingredients that allows it to grow. It's a little bit like us breathing in, and when we breathe in to get air, uh, that's when we get ozone damage in our lungs. So it's kind of a similar process in plants. So where there's a lot of ozone, it's like uh, us trying to run in heavy traffic? Right. Uh, In fact, the damage to crops tends to be larger than damage to, you know, other vegetation because we're usually fertilizing crops, and fertilizing crops is getting them to grow really fast. And it's like us going out and working really hard or running really hard. So if you do that, and then you have high ozone levels at the time, the damage to crops can be larger uh, than unfertilized vegetation. So your study looked at not only ozone as an environmental factor, but also warmer temperatures and the fact that there's more CO2. Um, So what is this trio... Uh, associated with the use of fossil fuels mean for agriculture? Well, the increasing CO2 is generally beneficial for plants. The changes in climate are, you know, sometimes good and sometimes bad. You know, warming in northern areas tends to kind of increase the growing season and actually increase productivity. A lot of warming in the tropics can actually damage productivity, but ozone is damaging. So we found that uh, as a result of increasing ozone levels, the combination of these could be as much as a 50 to 60 or 70 percent yield decline in temperate regions in China, the U.S., and Europe. So that was a large net effect on crops, so the ozone effect was dominating there. How surprised were you by the results of your study? Well, I was really dramatically surprised that the results were so negative, and we checked them several times. Uh, 
there is a threshold, 40 parts per billion of ozone in the atmosphere, above which damage starts occurring. What really happened here is that the actual ozone levels only increased 50%, but when measured above this threshold, the amount of ozone increased by sixfold. So that was a dramatic increase and led to this very high damage. So we're in a time now where we're seeing rising prices for food already, I guess in part due to uh, the American dollar not being worth as much as it is and the price of oil going up. And now ozone is another factor to limit uh, crop production. Yeah. And so I think, I mean, ozone and then our study actually found that climate change, you know, was largely beneficial. But we're not sure of that because the climate predictions are so uncertain. So high variability in climate could be another negative effect on crops. And then, you know, one of the answers to some of these problems are biofuels. And if you had a substantial biofuels program, that would still put more pressure on land resources and food prices. What's to be done? Well, it is possible to uh, select plants that are less sensitive to ozone, but I think one of the key results of this study is this global or hemispheric transport of ozone. So while now individual countries can set standards for their own areas and hope to achieve them, in the future, if we don't control emissions elsewhere, then we will find it difficult to achieve those in our own uh, backyard. If there is a silver lining to the cloud, it's that China is also going to experience crop damage from ozone, and it will be very much in their interest to reduce these pollution levels as well. John Riley is the Associate Director of the MIT Joint Program on the Science and Policy of Global Change. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. And coming up, a new twist on the diet that cuts the carbs. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin. In the rolling meadows of northeastern Connecticut, it's a spider-eat-grasshopper world. Over the last 12 years, Yale ecologist Oswald Schmitz has been there, researching the interaction between the predator, the prey, and the ecosystem where they live. The results of his work have just been published in the journal Science. In the study, Professor Schmidt suggests that the lessons learned in the wire cages that cover just two square meters of meadow in Connecticut can be equally applied to the thousands of acres of wilderness out in the American West. The reason why it's such a nice experimental system is that to work with bear and to work with wolves and moose and elk, you'd have to do your studies over, you know, thousands of square miles in range, whereas with these small critters, it's a nice model system for what the bigger animal systems look like, and uh, you can trace very carefully what all of the creatures are doing in that system, where it's a lot harder to follow wolves and, and elk on a landscape. So this experimental system is a nice model system for other kinds of predator-prey interactions in ecosystems. So there they are. You have spiders and grasshoppers uh, in these cylindrical cages over a section of grass. What did you find? Well, what's really interesting is that predators aren't just predators in the sense that they have different hunting tactics. And this generalizes to larger mammals also. So there's one species of spider that uh, roams quite widely all over the vegetation. And then there's another species of spider that actually sits in one location and ambushes its prey. So one is an active hunter, the other is an ambush predator. And then what happens to the plants as a result of those different behaviors? 
So when the grasshoppers are facing the sit-and-wait ambush predator, they retreat to safer habitat that's leafy, more, more complex. So their preferred food is grasses, and these ambush predators tend to hang out in the grasses. So the spiders retreat to this competitively dominant herb species, goldenrod, which is very common in a lot of these abandoned agricultural fields. It's a competitive dominant plant that suppresses a lot of the other herbs. And so what happens is the grass Hoppers are scared into this herb and they start eating their refuge too because they still need to meet their daily nutritional requirements. And by lowering the abundance of that, it releases all the other herbs. And so you get a much richer complement of species in the meadow. With the uh, active hunting predator, they don't seem to change their, their foraging tactics. They seem to prefer the grasses. And what happens then is the goldenrod flourishes. And because, it again, it's a competitive dominant, it suppresses the abundance of the other herbs. And so you get a much more species-poor meadow. The ambush-type predator, to me it would seem, and I'm not an ecologist, is um, a harder one to keep in an ecosystem than those that, that maraud. Uh, that's definitely true because um, they will seek out places where there's a, a really high chance of, of capturing prey. And so if you're not supporting that prey base somehow, then those predators will leave or, or they will you know, go extinct locally. So yes, they're a harder species to um, try and keep on a landscape. And yet there are species that tend to promote more ecological diversity. Indeed. Indeed. You know, that's the important lesson here is we really, really, really have to think strategically and carefully about protecting these species. How can you uh, look at conservation efforts in larger ecosystems, in particular out west, whether big ungulates or big grazers, you know, elk, they face a pack of wolves or they may face a, a cougar. How does what you've learned affect how people should perhaps be concerned about conservation in areas like this? Okay. You know, wolves tend to do a, do a reasonably good job of capturing and subduing their, their prey. And so if we don't want grazers like elk or deer or species like that to become highly abundant and then overgraze the landscape, we need these predators on the landscape to control the prey abundances. For example, in Yellowstone, the, the wolf is the dominant predator, and elk will shift their range use when facing imminent threat, but then they'll go back to business as usual and graze out in the prairie. In other parks, like Zion, cougars tend to be much more abundant, and the cougars actually change the use of the landscape by elk. And, for example, there are riparian areas, uh, riverside areas, uh, that the elk normally graze in, but those are risky in terms of cougar ambushing. And so they, they tend to avoid those locations, and that ends up rehabilitating stream banks and, and water quality. And so, you know, these lines of dependency we don't often think about because we think about the big bad predator and we have to get rid of it, but it's actually these indirect counterintuitive beneficial effects that some of these predators actually confer on ecosystems by changing the way they interact with their herbivore prey. Oswald Schmitz is a professor of ecology at Yale. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you, Steve. There's no national plan to cut America's carbon footprint, but some citizens take the issue of reducing greenhouse gas emissions seriously, and throughout the country there are initiatives to find ways to do just that. 
Living on Earth's Helen Palmer reports on some businesses and ordinary people in eastern Massachusetts that are finding practical ways to live a greener lifestyle. Welcome, guys. Welcome to Johnny D's. Uh, my name is Carla DeLellis. Woo! I... <laughs> Woo! Green martinis. <laughs> Anybody who a green martini is a friend, right? Um... The scene is Johnny D's, a music club in Davis Square, Somerville, Massachusetts. The green martinis are to celebrate local businesses going green. John is co-owner Carla DeLellis. We've, we've done it for a few reasons. One, because it's saving us a decent amount of money. I've calculated we've saved about 10% so far in the last six months that we've done it of our energy costs. Pretty good. One by one, folks from the area, Dave's Fresh Pasta, Arrow Street Architects, the local social security office, explain how they've greened up their business practices with energy audits, fluorescent light bulbs, and motion sensors in offices, recycling. Jennifer Park of the Diesel Cafe says they switched to biodegradable cups. We're really excited about that because they're made out of corn. We got rid of plastic in that sense. But then we realized that we actually were throwing a lot of cups away rather than what we were able to do before was recycle them. And we're like, this isn't actually any better because we're just throwing them away and now they're going into landfills. So then we sort of started working with a company called Save That Stuff to look at composting um, and more recycling for our business. Park says overall it saves money and wins loyalty from staff and customers. That's part of the idea of Go Green Davis, says Seth Itzgan. He owns a couple of web companies in the square. What got this thing going was just sort of the vision of a carbon-neutral Davis Square and the idea that a whole part of a city, a whole business part of a city, could be carbon-neutral. That's obviously a big dream, but I think it's an achievable dream, and uh, this is the first step of it is to get the business owners together and to uh, talk about how they can save money while also saving the environment. Save money, save the environment. It's not just for businesses, but for households too. It's the idea behind the low-carbon diet. That's not the kind of diet you might be starting to get rid of the winter flab, but a nifty way of cutting your carbon footprint. Susan Altman of the Massachusetts Climate Action Network is promoting this national program in the Bay State. It involves people in small groups getting together and helping each other and inspiring each other to do work that might otherwise not get done just because we're all busy people and it's very difficult to fit in yet one more little thing. Altman says the low-carb diet spreads from friend to friend. It comes with a book full of handy hints, ways to cut your personal carbon footprint by 5,000 pounds over 30 days. Many of the ideas are familiar, like replacing those incandescent light bulbs or remembering to take cloth bags to the grocery store. But Altman says this program works because it gives people a handy way of measuring. They march through this book and they write down, by doing this, I lost, let's see, an insulating blanket on your water heater. If you install one, credit yourself with 175 pounds of CO2 reduction annually. So you go through this and you write down the number of pounds you lose and every time you do it you get to see okay, that was 175 pounds, that was 50 pounds, that was 450 pounds. Before you know it, you're at 5,000. Small conservation measures quickly add up, says Dan Rubin. I've reduced my electricity use by 37%, but now I purchase renewable energy, so one could say I've reduced it by 100%. I've reduced my use of heating oil by 40%, and I've reduced my use of gasoline by 71%. Rubin's the director of green tourism for Boston. He spoke to a group of folks interested in signing up their friends to try the low-carbon diet. He says he made all these savings just by taking the kinds of actions detailed in the low-carbon diet book. There's no 
kind of learning that is better than actually making the changes yourself. There's no kind of learning like figuring out how do I reduce my own energy bill and trying different things and seeing your usage go down. And when you see your usage go down, your bills go down too. That's a big selling point of the low-carbon diet. Okay, so what do you think you spend on uh, gas heat every year? Mike Prokosh is introducing the diet to a group of African-Americans and immigrants at a workshop in a church hall in Dorchester, Massachusetts. Let's start by looking at some low-cost ways to conserve energy. One of the biggest ways that we're burning oil or gas is to heat water. How long do people spend in the shower in your household? Too, too long. <laughs> Set the kitchen timer and give the kids a five-minute time limit in the shower, says Prokosh. Turn the thermostat down. Save energy by doing laundry in cold water. We do just about all our clothes in cold water. The diet's a hit with Cynthia Jarvis. She's a single mother who's originally from Antigua and works as a health aide. This workshop is very interesting and you learn how to save energy and, and all them good stuff just to save some money in your pockets. Jarvis says she isn't likely to buy a hybrid car, but will try the easy changes, like new energy-saving light bulbs. It's Helen. Hi. One of my neighbours in Cambridge, contractor Jason Taylor, started the low-carb diet a couple of months ago. I've become a crazed thermostat watcher. And uh, we're in a constant battle, my wife and I, to I, I turn it down, she turns it up. But still, I'm, I'm gaining on her. Jason says they wear sweaters, and they bought a new Energy Star refrigerator. If you want to come into my basement, I can show you we had, when we moved in here, there was already this clothesline. There was a clothesline, an indoor clothesline, and as you can see, we use the clothes, I, because apparently the biggest use of electricity is when you have an electric clothes dryer. Um, so long underwear is my other, uh, I've got five pairs of long underwear now, and that means... Jason signed up his son, eight-year-old Miles, as well. Miles, how often do I take you to school on the bike? Well, we usually take the bike every, every day, except like when it's really, really icy or snowy. Right. And what, do you want to tell her about the, um, the recharger, the battery recharger we have? Oh, yeah, we have a solar battery recharger out there. It's really cool. Yeah. Jason reckons he's saved over 6,600 pounds of carbon so far. Susan Altman of the Massachusetts Climate Action Network says over the last six months, thanks to the diet, the Bay State as a whole has cut its carbon dioxide emissions by about 305,000 pounds. It's not much compared with the 48 tonnes of CO2 that US coal-fired power plants emit every year, but more teams are signing on to go low-carb every week, and every little bit helps. For Living on Earth, I'm Helen Palmer in Cambridge. You too can get a hold of the Low Carbon Diet book and find tips on how to lose 5,000 pounds in just 30 days. Details are on our website, LOE.org. Now, one of the easiest carbon-cutting ideas is to swap out incandescent light bulbs and replace them with compact fluorescent ones. 
Compact fluorescents have been touted as the great light hope, but there are some problems with these bulbs. They contain a small amount of toxic mercury. A broken bulb can emit vapors that may be dangerous to a person's health, and disposal is a problem. With me now to shine, uh, well, a light on this subject is Urvashi Rangan. She's a senior scientist and policy analyst with Consumers Union. Dr. Rangan, welcome back to Living on Earth. Thank you so much, Steve. Dr. Rangan, there are a couple of studies, I think one done by the state of Maine, another from uh, the Mercury Policy Project uh, based in Vermont, that uh, have issued some reports on the risks of mercury poisoning to infants, children, and pregnant women if compact fluorescent bulbs break. What are the findings of those reports? In those reports, they reported on a series of experiments that they did where they broke compact fluorescent bulbs in a small or moderate-sized room, and then they conducted various cleanup techniques. And then they tested the air at various height levels that would represent either an infant walking around or a toddler or an adult. So they looked at, at one foot and five feet in terms of the height differential and the amount of mercury that was found at those different height levels. And if you were at the lower level, you're in a lot more trouble, I gather. It definitely seemed to be the case that at the one-foot level, you had a lot more mercury cloud aerosolized. And so that's why the danger to toddlers and infants was flagged in this case. So wait a second. I have a compact fluorescent bulb. I drop it. I break it on the carpet in my living room. And suddenly I have a major health hazard? You actually have a, a small hazard going on. And the trick to cleaning this is actually to get rid of the spot where the compact fluorescent bulb landed, um, that is, if it's rug. And the best advice for getting rid of it is to cut that piece of rug out, or if it's an area rug, um, to get it out of the room. That's the most surefire way of making sure that you get the mercury out of your room. Now, details on the cleanup procedures will be on our website. But uh, what are consumers supposed to do here, Avashi? Well, I think the first thing is don't install compact fluorescence or fluorescent lighting in places that are particularly risky, that have small children, um, elderly people, pregnant women, areas where they are likely to break. I think that's the first tip. The second thing is you can use your incandescent lighting more efficiently. Using things like dimmer switches can actually reduce the amount of energy you're using for a bulb. So that's another good alternative to keep in mind. So what am I supposed to do when uh, my compact fluorescent light bulb quits working, you know, flickers one last time? Well, in some states, they actually require you to recycle them, and there's a variety of different options. Sometimes there's a curbside pickup where things like your lithium batteries, old cans of paint, um, other household hazardous waste would go, and that's where your compact fluorescence would go as well. Alternatively, some states may have uh, drop-off locations, or they may have collection days a couple days a year. What about uh, retailers, the people who sold me these bulbs? What about having them take them back? There are some retailers like IKEA that have stepped up to the plate and offer a take-back center for these bulbs. And that's really, I think, noble on behalf of the retailers to be offering these things. But convenience is often a factor in how effective recycling can be. And if it's not convenient, products are often not recycled. Now, why do compact fluorescent bulbs have mercury in them in the first place? 
It's actually part of the technology to light those bulbs. You need mercury vapor. And so one has to really ask, while there's been a lot of hype and focus on the energy efficiency of compact fluorescence and fluorescent lighting in general, is it really the overall sustainable solution? Compact fluorescents are more energy efficient. I mean, no one can argue with that. But there are other technologies like LED technology that are really offering even less toxic as energy-efficient alternatives. And I think that compact fluorescence may just be a stop along the way in terms of finding the most sustainable solution. And we also have to look at how these things need to be disposed, how are they produced, how much energy goes into all of that, and how much energy goes into recycling these things once they're done. So all of those things also need to be taken into account when we're looking at overall sustainability. Urvashi Rangan is a senior scientist and policy analyst with Consumers Union. Thanks for taking the time, Urvashi. Steve, thanks so much. Just ahead, help, we're being invaded by smelly plants. Could weevil save us? Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Coming up, non-native plants threaten to take over. But first, this note on emerging science from Annie Gia. Bees give us many things. Honey, stings, even inspiration for Hollywood bee movies. But a better internet? That's what one group of scientists is devising thanks to these busy workers, or rather, dancers. When bees find new honey, they dance. Their jigging, however, is not for celebrating. It's to tell their hive mates about the discovery. Bees use boogieing to communicate the quality of each flower patch, and with this knowledge, they fluidly shift their workforce as nectar supplies change. Researchers at the Georgia Institute of Technology realize the internet faces a similar challenge as bees. A limited number of web servers provides processing power to many websites whose traffic constantly changes, just like a limited number of bees collect nectar from many flower patches. But while bees move around, Conventional web servers cannot. A fixed number of servers attends to each website, no matter how much traffic fluctuates. Scientists emulated B's system of dancing and invented a way for web servers to communicate with each other and move between websites. Busy servers post requests for help, and those with low traffic shift to busy websites. The result? Less congestion and a more efficient internet. Another upgrade, inspired by bees that stay home on cloudy days when flowers aren't blooming, would turn off the power to idle servers. This could cut energy use by 20%. Staying home? Dancing? Sweet. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Annie Gia. In the kitchen, garlic and mustard are favorite ingredients to flavor and spice our food. But the garlic mustard plant? Well, that's more like a stinky kettle of fish. 
This unwelcome import from Europe has taken over millions of acres of forest floors in America and is far too widespread to get rid of easily. So scientists are now looking to biological control to address the garlic mustard problem. Joining me now is Adam Davis. He's an ecologist with the Agricultural Research Service of the USDA and teaches at the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana. Hello, Professor Davis. Hello. Tell me about the garlic mustard plant. Garlic mustard is a biennial plant. It means it takes two years to complete its life cycle. Its home range is in Europe, extending into Western Asia. It's a very hardy plant. It comes out pretty much first thing at the end of winter, beginning of spring, and dominates the forest floor. Just how, when, and where was it introduced in North America? It was actually brought in intentionally. 1869, it was brought in as a culinary herb in Long Island, but unfortunately, uh, it doesn't taste very good. Like a really sharp mustard green. Since it came, it's what, in 34 states and four Canadian provinces? And it, it just keeps on going. Well, it does best within temperate forest and kind of the northern part of the U.S., but it's getting more and more prevalent within each of the states where it's found. This plant is considered a pest. Why is it so unstoppable? It seems to have a few different mechanisms that make it particularly invasive. It's cold-hardy and shade-tolerant, so it comes up early in the spring when most plants aren't able to grow. It also appears to secrete what are called allelochemicals into the soil. Uh, Allelochemicals are chemical compounds that one plant uh, introduces into the growing environment to suppress the growth of another plant. So it's kind of chemical warfare against the native plants. Now, typically with a weed, a plant you don't want, you just pull it up and you get rid of it. What about the garlic mustard? Within a given year, you can certainly kill the adult plants by pulling them up. But the problem is that The garlic mustard seeds are quite long-lived, and once the seeds enter the soil seed bank, they can remain there for over 10 years. So if you want to get rid of a population by hand, it means that you've got to pull it every year for 10 years. As I understand it, some researchers in Switzerland have discovered a predator that uh, has a particular taste for garlic mustard. Yeah, this predator is called a Pseudorhynchus scrobicolis, and these weevils are very well adapted dealing with garlic mustard. Garlic mustard has some potent anti-feedant compounds that it produces. And in order to eat garlic mustard, these weevils have to detoxify it. I gather there's some pressure to bring this weevil in and, 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 and sick it on plants. But of course, when one does that, there could be unintended consequences. Sure. In recent years, biological control has received some negative press because of the unintended consequences. And as a new generation of biocontrol specialists, we're trying to develop ways of minimizing risk to non-target species. I understand you use computer modeling to assess using this weevil to, to control the garlic mustard plant. How did that work out? It worked out quite well. We simulated transitions between different garlic mustard life stages and across different parts of its range and tried to figure out how much damage and what types of damage would be necessary to control garlic mustard. And the computer told you what? The computer told us this particular weevil is very, very specific. It's a, it's monophagous. It just eats garlic mustard. What about the ability of this weevil, though, to adapt? If it figured out how to eat garlic mustard, maybe it could figure out how to eat, uh, you know, chrysanthemum, something like that. This weevil 
co-evolved with garlic mustard over millennia. And so if it burns itself out in a local population, uh, it's just not going to have the time to adapt. What would be a successful outcome? I think completely eradicating it is really unlikely. But the goal of classical biological control is to have the, the agent and the plant pest come to some new sort of equilibrium at a much lower population density. Now, I imagine people listening to us are going to feel somewhat apprehensive, despite your assurances it's very low probability. And the problem is this. Typically, we don't know what we don't know. I mean, we just don't know what the weevil might try to do to adapt in response. One of the suggestions for further reducing risk associated with biological control is to do preliminary caged releases where you could see whether the agent starts behaving differently in the introduced range than in the home range. It's not really about eliminating risk. It's about managing risk and thinking more in a risk-benefit framework. Adam Davis is a plant ecologist with the Agricultural Research Service of the USDA and teaches at the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. The Sonoran Desert runs from northwest Mexico up into the southwest U.S. and covers most of southern Arizona and the southeast corner of California. It's a starkly beautiful landscape full of unique animals, an array of colorful birds, and bizarre and hardy plants. Its signature species is the giant saguaro cactus. It towers over the pebbly desert soil like a huge scarecrow, its outstretched arms up to 10 feet off the ground. But a new threat is springing up at the feet of these desert sentinels. Non-native grasses are spreading rapidly and bringing with them the danger of wildfires. Jim Williams of KUNM visited Saguaro National Park near Tucson, Arizona, where one troublesome invasive has caught everyone's attention. You give it a sometimes a good twist here, kind of like a rope. It holds it together better. And uh, then they get down in the crevices, which makes it a little more creative to get them out. <laughs> On an afternoon that would be called hot by most anyone not from Arizona, Matt Johnson hacks away with a steel pick on a rocky slope in Saguaro National Park. He's one of eight volunteers from the Arizona Native Plant Society who are pulling a stubborn non-native plant called buffalo grass. Incredible. Clint Grafham says he can't believe how fast the Sonoran Desert's filling up with these wheat-colored clumps. Anywhere around the city that I see it, I'll dig it up. I don't care who wants on. <laughs> Bufflegrass is from Ethiopia, where it was named after the buffalo who loved it. The U.S. government imported it in 1938 and planted it in trial plots for use as cattle food and to reduce soil erosion in the American Southwest. Back then, it had a difficult time getting established. But fast forward about 70 years, and it's now found its way to roadsides in Tucson. And within the past few years, it's spread like, well, wildfire up into the desert and onto its surrounding hillsides. Some scientists believe global warming could be fueling the spread. Tucson is in a multi-year drought, and average summer temperatures have been increasing. Whatever the reason, though, grass loves it here now. And while the sight of it is troubling, botanists and ecologists are most worried about the fire it will inevitably bring. The grass, which is tender, dry, and dormant for most of the year, burns quickly and at very high temperatures. Matt Johnson has just cleared a skirt of buffalo grass from around the base of a massive saguaro. This saguaro will not now burn if the fire were to come start you know, tomorrow in this remaining patch of grass. Kind of like people, saguaros, if they get more than about 60% of their stem surface burned, same as severe burn victims, the survival rate goes way down, just a little singeing around the base. They'll handle it. 
breathing a sigh of relief yeah. when they get this stuff. <laughs> Stephen Hansen, another volunteer here pulling buffalo grass, furrows his brow. There are a lot of homeowners in the foothills and such that have major infestations of this grass. I don't know how where they are, but this uh, this poses a real threat to their property as well. Uh, this grass burns very vigorously with very tall flame, and it's easily able to uh, destroy a house and all the plants, including saguaros, around it. It is the plant from hell. Julio Betancourt is a senior scientist with the U.S. Geological Survey. In recent years, he's been all over the media around the world talking about buffalo grass. Betancourt stands and points up at the southern base of the Catalina Mountains, which rise out of what's quickly becoming North Tucson. And you can see all these patches. Like, you see that patch right down there? That's buffalo grass right there. You see that patch over there next to uh, Pima Canyon? Buffalo grass. You start looking down the mountain, and you start picking out all these little patches, and that's all buffalo grass. And eventually, the whole ridge will be buffalo grass. Betancourt calls this neighborhood in which we're standing the high-rent district, where the least costly house is in the vicinity of a million dollars. The views are spectacular from here. But soon, he says, this invasive buffalo grass will create a fire link from those beautiful mountains right into town. And any fire that begins down here will have an easy time rising right up into the saguaros on the hills above. Betancourt says, though, it's not going unnoticed. I think humans have this animalistic visceral reaction to changes on a landscape. And I, I think the same thing is, is already happening with the population in Tucson, that they notice that something's changing, changing very, very fast. Well, the Park Service has noticed, that's for sure. It's partnered with the Arizona Native Plant Society and a relentless group named the Sonoran Desert Weed Whackers to build an impressive team of buffalo grass tackling volunteers. But it's a foot race. The grass seems to be winning. Meg Wiesner is Saguaro National Park's Chief of Science and Resources Management. She says researchers are seeing native plants like the green-trunked Palo Verde and saguaro dying out in stands of buffalo grass, their water supply cut off by the invaders. Southern California has seen invasive grasses take over in similar ways in recent years. Wiesner says think of the fires there as exactly what could happen in Tucson and Saguaro National Park. You get flame lengths of 20 or 30 feet. Firefighters can't fight those kinds of fires, and so they're bound to get pretty large. Unfortunately, the buffalo grass is adapted to fire. It burned regularly in Africa where it came from, and that buffalo grass, the tops will be burned off, but the plant is a bunch of grass, and it'll still be in the ground. It'll come back up and grow denser than ever, making it even more subject to catching fire the next time. That process kills the native Sonoran plants, turning the desert into an African savanna, a grassland. In places in northern Mexico, that's already happened. And it's an expensive problem. Buffalo grass has now spread into a thousand acres of Saguaro National Park. Without the help of volunteers, removing the buffalo grass can cost over $13,000 an acre. Wiesner says the Park Service has also begun herbicide spraying on the grass because digging it up can actually spread the seeds. But spraying costs $1,200 an acre. And because the chemical has to be absorbed by the plant, the buffalo grass can only be sprayed when it's green, which means a very short window of opportunity in the summer. Add to that the fact that the chemical is essentially a version of Roundup, which some studies have shown might harm soil bacteria and amphibians. But the volunteers out on the hillside in the park say fire is a much more immediate and devastating threat. Meg Wiesner says all the challenges require a huge collective effort. 
The park has partnered with almost everybody who manages a plot of large ground in the Tucson Basin. We have all of the land managing agencies, all the departments of transportation, and we actually had a summit last winter to develop a coordinated effort because it doesn't help to get rid of the grass on one side of the fence if it's on the other. And with a lack of federal funding to deal proactively with invasives, Wiesner says the Park Service is struggling to stay on top of it all. But she adds that with the battalion of volunteers, the city of Tucson and Pima County all in on the buffelgrass fight, she's hopeful. You have to be an optimist in this field. That's the only way to be. Back in the buffelgrass-choked Saguaro National Park, volunteer Matt Johnson keeps swinging his pick. It's... Job security, I guess. (laughs) For Living on Earth, I'm Jim Williams in Saguaro National Park. You can get our program anytime on our website or get a download for your MP3 player. The address is LOE.org. That's LOE.org. You can email us anytime at comments at LOE.org. Once again, comments at LOE.org. Our postal address, 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. And you can call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. On the next Living on Earth, outdoor wood boilers may be an inexpensive way to heat your home, but in Maine, they're making enemies out of neighbors. People are not allowed to dump poison waste on my property. They're not allowed to um, poison the water that we drink. But meanwhile, they're contaminating and poisoning the air that we breathe. That shouldn't be allowed. The boilers that generate heat and controversy next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week down under, in southeast Australia, with the red-rumped parakeet. These colorful birds are natives of this region, but now have to compete with starlings and sparrows for nesting sites. So humans often help them along by providing nest boxes. The parakeet's melodious tunes were recorded for the compilation CD, 50 Bird Songs from Around the World. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation, 
Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Jennifer Basler, Sarah Calkins, and Jackson Brader. Our interns are Annie Gia and Margaret Rossano. Thanks this week to the National Parks Conservation Association. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues, and Pax World Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI, Public Radio International.